Well, greetings this morning. It's good to be here with you all. I've wanted for a long time to come visit Oasis. So when uh, Brother Earl asked me last Sunday if I would come and speak here today, it wasn't hard for me to say yes. Um, I know many of you, but some of you I do not know. Uh, when I walked in the door and I started meeting some of these young people that I remember when they were born, or at least when they were toddlers, and that puts a little rebellion in me to think that I'm getting to that age. And yet, it's exciting to see the, the next generation taking a hold, and it's actually part of the passion of the message that I have on my heart here today. I've uh, been really blessed to worship with you here this morning so far. I've just enjoyed every part of it. The uh, testimony time that you had was precious. I enjoyed everything everybody shared. Some of it was very inspirational. I just about jumped in my chair at that Romans uh, 16:20, Brother Earl. I think I'm going to come back to that a little bit later in the message. I never looked at that verse before. But one of the things that I um, really enjoyed as much as anything were the moments of silence in between. And I just wanted to mention something about that. Um, because that's been a burden on my heart for a long time, that we don't appreciate silence in our lives the way we need to. And I hope all of you here can embrace that. Um, there's two ways we can approach that. One is to sit there just thinking, who's going to speak next? Oh, this is an uncomfortable silence. And we, and we miss the blessing of the silence. Or we can sit there and just focus our heart on God and just think about whatever God wants us to meditate on in the moment. And that silence can be as powerful as anything else that you can experience. You need it not just in your worship services, but in your personal life too. But I was challenged some time ago. I read a story about a church over in, I think it's France, that is a um, an outworking of a, a very unusual monastery. There's a, a group of monks there who have committed themselves to to, um, you know, as monks do, studying the Word, studying God, and, and a life committed to nothing else than pursuit of God. They're also a, a group of singing monks. They're very famous for their singing. And so, lots of people come from all over the world to see the, these monks sing. And they have public services every week, and they can hold, I think, about a thousand people in their chapel. And of course, singing is a significant part of that service. But one of the things that they do, in their services, um, is have moments of protracted silence. Ten minutes, where everybody just sits totally quiet. And I wondered, when I read that, and, 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 and also read some testimonies of people who had experienced that, you know, the power of God speaking through, through song, through testimony, through a message, through whatever, and then to just sit silently and reflect. And let God talk to our hearts. Something really powerful in that. And I think it's a discipline. Silence is a discipline. And I just was blessed with those opportunities this morning to reflect. Just wanted to encourage you to embrace that and actually um, intentionally pursue it. I think it's just fine if you sit here for five or ten minutes sometime and nobody says anything. If God hasn't moved on anybody's heart to publicly speak something, just let God speak to you in those in that quiet. So... For what it's worth. The, um, <clears throat> the message that I'd like to share this morning is, the title of it is The Church Triumphant. 
and I'd like to go to um, to Matthew chapter 16. We, uh, our brother this morning read out of Matthew 24 and 25. I believe it was there in his devotional, and I was blessed with that. And I said, well, I guess this morning is the morning for Matthew. But um, there's a lot of things that we can pull out of even those verses. I appreciated the thoughts he shared. And maybe we'll come to some of that. I might tie a little bit of that in later on in this message also. But the things I'd like to share with you today are a continuing passion of my heart. This is a study that never gets done for me. And the more I study, the more I reflect, the more I am convinced that this is the very core of our Christianity. This is the very core of our, 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 our corporate church experience. This is the very core of our efforts to pass on faith to the next generation. And as this has been a growing burden on my heart, um, I feel God's call to share it. Um, and when Brother Earl asked me to, to preach here today, and I prayed about it, but it didn't take me long to feel clear that this is what God wants me to share with you. And I hope that you can be inspired and challenged and motivated to pick up this concept and study it yourself. I don't think it's a strange concept to you, and yet, um, and yet probably some of what I I'm going to share this morning is maybe more targeted, more focused, um, a little bit more clear than some of the way we've come to think about this theologically. And and I appreciated the comment that was made in um, in the uh, testimony period about living in theology versus living in Christ. And and I appreciated what he shared there that theology is important, but it's got to be in the context of living in Christ. That's going to come out so clearly in this message. And I hope that um, it, it. I hope you can be very inspired with this. But I'd like to just say today, all of us here, and I know from the little bit I know, you've had your share of wrestlings here in this congregation. We're going through some too right now in our congregation, and those things make it challenging to feel excited about being a part of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I talk to a lot of people who are discouraged. Uh, with all of these things that they see in church. And sometimes we're tempted to want to bail out and just hit the eject button. I can relate to that. And I can appreciate those feelings. But there's a couple of questions that beg to be asked when we start to feel that discouragement. Number one is, what are we getting away from? Number two is, what are we going to? What are we jumping to when we, when we give in to those temptations? I think most of the time, those temptations are an outworking of flesh in us. We don't like the pain of some of these things we have to go through, and so we face those struggles. But I believe today that the Church of Jesus Christ is a very vibrant, it's a very alive, it's a thriving community of God's people. And even when we go through these times of, of wrestling, even when we go through these times of struggle as we try and sort things out and decide paths and all of those things, It's still there. It's still growing. It's still enduring. And ultimately, it will be triumphant. And my call today is for every one of us to be able to understand that underlying reality and embrace it with our whole heart because we want to be part of it. And I hope by the time I'm done today, you will feel that way. It does really function well. And it is a blessing when when it lives by the principles that Jesus gave for its operation But too many times we do mar it because our humanity gets in the way and gets involved. 
But Jesus' will and his desire when he spoke these words here in Matthew 16, then as now, is that it be a glorious church, a triumphant church, triumphant over all evil. And that Romans uh, 16 thing. I do, I've never seen that verse before, brother. I've never thought about that verse. But when you read that verse this morning, it just, uh, it went like a light bulb in my mind. And I'd like to say, no, it's not all done. The story is not all written. God is going to crush the head of the serpent shortly. It doesn't say the head there. But God is going to bruise the ser- serpent shortly through you. And I believe today that goes on for you and I. And when I'm done with some of the points in this message, I think you understand why I say that. Triumph over evil and a reflection of God himself. So let's look at this. This is the beginnings of the church here and this passage here in, in Matthew 16. I want to start in verse 13. This is often considered a very difficult passage of scripture. There's some tough things in here theologically. I think because of that, it's one that's often kind of avoided. I never heard too many sermons on this. Um, you know, there's just some of the hard sayings in here and there's been a lot of controversy over these things. And yet it's also a passage upon which a lot of very, very firm, settled theological positions have been founded. And so it's an important passage of scripture. I'd like to look at it. Matthew 16 and verse 13. And I should uh, just say for context here, you know, Jesus was ministering with his disciples now for quite some period of time. He spent a lot of time um, in discussions with the scribes and Pharisees. His disciples were present for some of that. He'd done a lot of miracles uh, just a little while before. He had the feeding of the 5,000. His disciples had seen all of that. So they'd been walking with him for, for quite a period of time. They'd spent a lot of time interacting together. And now they come to this, this time. In verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say, Some say, Thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then charged he his disciples, that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. I find that last verse puzzling. Why would Jesus have charged his disciples not to tell anybody that he was Jesus the Christ? I don't know for sure. But I think perhaps there's one answer to that. And that is that he wanted each person to discover and embrace that reality for himself. Think about that as we look at what this means. But this is an amazing passage of scripture and there's there's basically five very important points and principles that I'd like to look at today here in this and there's more that we could there's more that could be mined out but I got enough with these five I have to stay focused or we won't get done in reasonable time. 
First of all, I'd like to look at the confession. What is this confession that Peter made after Jesus asked his question? Two, I'd like to look at the rock. What is the rock? And Jesus said, you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. See, that's a tough one theologically. People have argued about that for as long as the Christian church has been here and these words have been written. Number three, what is the church? Upon this rock I will build my church. What is that church? And four, I'd like to look at the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not prevail against this church. And finally, fifth, I'd like to look at the keys to the kingdom. That verse, 19. So, if we're going to get to the keys to the kingdom, we have to get through some of this other. And the very most exciting part to me is actually the very first one, because this is the foundation, I believe, for understanding the whole passage. What comes here in this confession. When Jesus asked this question, and I think it was kind of a logical outworking of their interaction that they'd had, you know, all of this time that he spent discussing things with the Pharisees, you know, doing the miracles and the disciples had walked with him. And it's a common sense question you would ask. Hey, who are people? What are people saying about me by now? Who, who do men say that I am? What perceptions are people gaining about everything I'm saying, everything I'm doing? What do people think about me? And the answers that they gave there are very interesting. And I'd, I'd like you to take note of that. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elias. <clears throat> some say you're Jeremiah or another one of the prophets. What is unique about ever or not, not unique? What is common about all of those answers? Stop and think about it. They were all struggling to fit this man who was doing these miracles, doing all this teaching, uh, uh, contending with the Pharisees. And, and as, as it says in another passage, Speaking with, with one who has authority. He, there was something about this man that was different. There was something that they, they couldn't quite relate to. And they were trying to put him into a familiar framework. They were trying to bring this Jesus man into something that their minds could get around. They understood Jeremiah. They understood Elijah. They'd studied these men their whole lives. They knew who those were. They knew they were godly men. And so they're, they're, they're trying to put Jesus into this familiar framework. I think that's compelling. The reason being is because the question that Jesus asked, and he came next then to this question to his disciples, so who do you say that I am? We all have that exact same question to face today. And as we think about what it means, what is the church of Jesus Christ? What is this church triumphant? What is this body that's supposed to reflect God himself and be actually the body of Jesus here on earth? What is this? And it's all rooted in this question. And so I say today, he's, God is putting forth this question to every one of us here today. If you're here and you claim to be a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, this question comes to you and to me. Whom say ye that I am? As we consider Christendom all around us, I believe you find a lot of people that are still trying to fit Jesus into some familiar framework that they can relate to. Some, some, some box that they can have him in and know that they can relate safely to him there. He's Jeremiah, or he's Elijah, or another one of the prophets. <clears throat> John the Baptist, he had come as a reformer. There's differences you could look at in all of those answers, but the common thing between all of them is that they, 
They were putting Jesus into something that was familiar. Now I'd like you to look at Peter's answer to this question. And I'd like to say by contrast, Peter's answer was bold. It was dangerous. It was daring. It expressed something utterly and completely different than what was contained in those other answers. Jesus said to his disciples, But whom say ye that I am? I love Peter. As I've studied, as I study the Gospels, I continue to find Peter my personal favorite among all the disciples. And I think that's because I can relate so much to Peter. He was outspoken. He was bold. He was the first one there. And I find myself in those shoes so many times. So I tend to think personality wise, Peter was probably a little like me or I like Peter. I'm not sure. But, you know, Peter on the way to the resurrection Easter morning, I love this story. And he's he is outrunning John. I mean, he's picking him up, and putting him down and he gets there first. That's Peter. And, and, and true to form, Jesus asked this question to all his disciples that were there. Who do you say that I am? And Peter is right out of the box. I don't know if he understood totally what he was saying when he made this confession. But I believe that the confession came out of a genuine heart. I believe it came out of a very sincere expression of how he felt about Jesus. He'd been walking with this man. He'd been learning to love this man. He'd been learning to respect who he was. He'd been listening to his teaching. He'd been listening to all of his engagements with the Pharisees. And I think this expression that Peter gave was straight out of his heart. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe it's difficult for us to appreciate the power that was in that confession. But I'd like us to consider it for a moment. I believe that the very key to understanding this confession is to look at the word Christ. Thou art the Christ. The Greek word underneath Christ is Christos. It's a transliteration which is consistent in almost any Bible translation you look at anywhere in the world, any language. Christ is always transliterated from Christos. Now, I'm curious who can tell me here what what Christos means. If you look into most uh, Greek dictionaries, uh, whether it's Vines or Strong's or whatever else, anybody look that up? Does anybody know what Christos means? Yes, brother. Correct. That's what you often find, Messiah or promised one. If you look a little deeper and look at the root for what Christos is, the root is the anointed one speaks of anointing, and it speaks of smearing with oil. Now, my, my heart was first opened up to what I believe this means, and you follow through. I'm laying a challenge out here theologically for you, but as I've studied my whole New Testament, everything starts to make sense and come together when we understand this concept that I think Peter was verbalizing. There's a book that was written some years ago, and there's been a little controversy over the book. There's some people that have not liked it. The title of the book is very, very provocative. The title is The Problem with Christ. And it was written by Chris Gorton. He's a um, non-Anabaptist, but he has, he's a very educated man. He's a professor in, uh, I think he lives in Florida right now, and he's also a Greek scholar. Um, not full-time, but he knows Greek fluently, and he studies a lot of Greek. And he showed up, I don't know, I think I first met him at the um, Anabaptist Identity Conference that was here at Ephrata, I don't know, four or five years ago. I noticed, Chris, because 
um, in some of the comments that were, you know, shared, being shared after some of the sessions, he stood up and spoke a handful of times and his words had some weight and meaning and I caught, I paid attention to it and he was wearing this beautiful red jacket, this beautiful red leather jacket and he seemed totally unconscious of his red leather, red leather jacket sitting in the middle of Anabaptist Lancaster County. I was fascinated by that. I got to be friends with him later. He actually came to my house that weekend. We spent some time interchanging. He was blissfully ignorant at that point in his life of all the sensitivities of Mennonite culture. And he had stopped on, he's from Florida, right? They don't wear jackets in Florida. So he got here, it was cold, it was, I forget, March. And, and he stopped at a Goodwill on his way from the airport and got that beautiful red leather jacket. And so anyway, I never forgot Chris Gordon. And we had some interchange over different, you know, things. When he's into Greek, he's into theology a lot. But then we got on this subject, which is his, one of his pet peeves is about this Greek word, Christos. And then he wrote his book several years later, and you can find it on Amazon if you want to read it. I recommend it. I have not found anything that has not blessed my life in that book. He's perhaps a little on an extreme, which you'll find professors who are making a point often are that way, right? They go out on an extreme to make their point. But his point is that this Greek word Christos being transliterated instead of translated in our English Bibles and true in almost every Bible around the world has has greatly affected our understanding of who Christ is. And, and underneath that, who God is. And he contends, and I believe rightly, he has done a tremendous amount of, of research and study. He contends that Peter's intention, when this word, when he used this word, and throughout the New Testament, most times where Christ, where Christos is used, that the idea was the anointed one, which if you think about Hebrew, uh, Hebrew the, the context of Hebrew thinking, um, one of the most one of the most real times where anointing was used was in the anointing of a king. It's consistent through the Old Testament. And so he challenged me to study this and start reading my New Testament and everywhere it says Christ, put king in. I challenge you to do that. It really, really opens a lot of things up. Now let's unpack why that is so meaningful. I have come to believe very clearly that that is what Peter was confessing when he said these words. Jesus, you are the Christ. Notice the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe what Peter was saying in our, in words that we can relate to today. Jesus, you are the King, the Son of the living God. Now what goes along with the concept of kingship? <clears throat> Loyalty. Loyalty is probably the number one concept that we're going to associate with kingship. There's a lot that flows out of that. There's submission. There is allegiance. There is trust. And so much hinges on the concept of loyalty. When we become a Christian, when we commit our lives to Christ, when we are born again, I really, really believe that this change of allegiance from loyalty to the king of this world who works himself out in the addictions of our flesh. And, you know, you can read everything in the New Testament about how that works. Um, but our flesh, as it's laid out there in Galatians, responds to 
the king of this world and all of, all of its inputs. First uh, John two fifteen, loving the world. Any man, no man can can love the world and love God at the same time. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're pretty familiar with the two kingdom concept, but it really comes alive when you consider this concept of loyalty. And so, when we make a choice to follow Christ, I really believe this is what we are doing or should be doing. We're making a a switch of loyalty from loyalty to to this world and our flesh, which is tied into all of the things, the, the kingdom of this world, and we're making a switch of loyalty to follow the king of kings. Why is that so profound? Because when you make a switch of loyalty from your heart, every single thing in your life is going to flow out of that. And it no longer becomes a duty, but it becomes a spontaneous desire. All of a sudden, everything that, that is in your life experience, practically, theologically, um, relationship-wise, becomes an outflow of that idea of loyalty to your king. And I believe that's why what comes later in this chapter follows on. What a powerful confession that Peter made there. You are my deliverer, Jesus, my king. And the son of the living God. And I think living God is significant too. Not a dead, lifeless idol. Not an abstract, far away theological reality, which, you know, most of the Hebrew Jews that would have been, they knew God, but God was distant. Most of them did not know God as a close God. Now, I believe you read through the Old Testament and look at David's relationship with God. I think that was a close relationship. I think there was some that did. But, but by and large, most of them were distant. And these were the same people trying to figure out how to fit Jesus into a framework that they could relate to. They, they were not at the same place Peter was where they could bring him close. Say, Jesus, you are my king. You are the one to whom I commit my life. It was a powerful and bold and daring and dangerous confession. And I'd like to just ask you before I go on here to the next point. Have you? Have I? Confess Jesus as the Christ in my life and in your life. Because I honestly believe on that question hangs everything else. Jesus said it simply. You know, there's two basic commands. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And on those two commands hang all the law and prophets. And notice that loving your neighbor as yourself follows loving God. You get this loyalty thing straight. You get your heart fixed on God in that way. Where you can truly say, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are my king. You are the king in my life. My loyalty is to you. My commitment is to you. My unswavering determination is to reflect you. You let that be the bedrock theological foundation of your Christian life. And all of a sudden, the second command that Jesus gave, which is love your neighbor as yourself is the first thing that flows out of it. And I honestly believe, this is a whole separate message, but I believe that that is the new commandment that Jesus came when He brought. And He spoke of that numerous times. John speaks of it a lot there in 1 John. A new commandment give I unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. When we are committed and we have that relationship with King Jesus that way, and our supreme desire is to be a reflection of Him while we're walking here on this earth, then His nature flows out of us. It's where the work of the Holy Spirit comes in. 
because he says, you commit yourself to me that way. I will build my church with you. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. But his spirit comes into us and he starts to work in our hearts and flow out of us. And guess what comes out? It's the nature of God himself. Have you made that confession? Or would I prefer to keep him in a safe box? Am I limited by a preconceived idea of who he is and not able to get past it? Or am I afraid to go there? Complete loyalty is without reservation. Am I afraid to go there? Am I afraid to become vulnerable to him in confessing him that way? Or will we join Peter? You are my Messiah. You are my anointed one. You are the king of my heart. To you alone will I submit. To you alone will I bend my knee. To you alone will I be true. Because you are Christ. Christos, the son of the living God. This confession is hugely important for the rest of what follows here in this passage. And I would like to just say, at the end of this point, that this confession, I believe, is absolutely necessary, absolutely essential for every person that's going to be part of this triumphant church that Jesus speaks of. In the remainder of this passage. Am I a part? <clears throat> well, now let's come to the rock. So, so Peter made that confession and Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I don't think Peter understood what was going on here. This, I, I think a lot of this went clean over Peter's head. And that's revealed in the following verses, which we are not going to get to this morning. Where, where Peter was suddenly out of league again, out of sync with what this meant. But I do believe that confession came straight out of Peter's heart. And But Jesus knew, and Jesus understood, and that's why I believe he spoke the words he spoke here to Peter. And so in verse 18, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is this rock? There's two Greek words there. In that, in that, um, that are used. And this is interesting because they're different. I'm going to read it in the Amplified. Uh, this brings it out. I tell you, you are Peter. That Greek word Peter is Petros, which means a large piece of rock. And on this rock, and that Greek word is Petra. Close, but it's a little different. And Petra is a huge rock like Gibraltar. So Petra is bigger than Petros. You're Peter, a large rock. And on this, on this rock, Petra, this huge rock like Gibraltar, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the power of the infernal region, shall not overpower it. What is the rock? Historically, and theologically, if you go studying this thing in your uh, commentaries or wherever else, you'll find three, three schools of thought about this. One is the Roman view, which, which is Peter singled out from among all the apostles that Peter was the rock. And he was given singular authority by God in this, um, in this instance, by Jesus. And that authority since has been passed down through successors and ends in the Pope today. That is how they arrive at the power of the Pope. They trace it all the way back to St. Peter. And these words where Jesus said, you're Peter and on you I will build this church. There's problems with that view. <clears throat> the second view is the view that the confession itself was the rock. That Peter's confession was the rock. 
And, and I should say Protestants and evangelicals are pretty much split on these second two views. Catholics hold to the first one. And many of your, um, uh, um, the older liturgical churches like the Anglicans, I believe, would tend towards that first idea. They also trace their, their theological authority back to Peter in some ways. But Protestants and evangelicals would largely be split on these second two. One, that the confession itself was the rock. And two, that Jesus himself is the rock. And, and of course, there's some substance for those two interpretations from the two different Greek words. But as I studied it thoroughly, I think there's problems with all three of those views. So let me share with you what my view is, and then you can decide for yourself. But I believe my view comes right out of understanding what we just looked at in Peter's confession. So listen carefully here. First of all, I'd say the, the Roman view just simply is not consistent with anything else in the New Testament. Uh, nowhere do you find um, a single apostle uh, uh, lifted up above the others. You can, there, there's many things in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.20, for example, we're, we the church, you are built upon the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets, plural, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And that's just one example of many you could look at. But there is no good foundation in the New Testament to be able to embrace the idea that Jesus was lifting Peter out singularly. It's a problem. And I do not believe that Jesus was giving transmissible authority here or anywhere. And I'd like to say that the idea of a foundation, that's contrary to a foundation. A foundation is something that's set, it's solid, it does not change over time. And you know, for example, and I'm not here knocking Catholics today. Um, <laughs> some of you would call me a heretic, but I think it's likely that, that I'm going to sit beside some Catholics in heaven when I get there. I, I could tell you why I believe that. <laughs> but nevertheless, Catholic theology has a lot of problems. And, and when you switch from one pope to another pope, the, the leanings of one pope vary in how he's going to apply things in the Catholic Church. And you can look at the Catholic Church over time and see a lot of change, a lot of, and it all comes on the whims and ideas of whoever's, whoever is voted in as Pope. It's a fascinating process. I've studied how they make their Popes and it's very fascinating. Um, and frankly, the politics of, of our, our traditions, many of our conservative Anabaptist traditions, and the politics of Catholic tradition are not too far apart. Um, we have some differences, but yet there's a lot of similarities. But my point is, I don't want to go on a bunny trail about that, but my point is that, that a foundation does not change. So you cannot have the very foundation of the church constantly shifting from one pope to the next. You know, from Peter it was passed on to and passed on to, and that foundation is shifting. It just can't work. It can't work even logically. So I, I absolutely believe that Jesus was not giving any transmissible authority. The other two views that are held out that the confession alone is the rock and that Jesus himself and the rock are each individually problematic. To view the confession alone as the rock is pure conjecture. There is no tie-in if you're going to actually study what the expression was here that Jesus was giving. You just have to kind of put that idea out there and say, well, this is what I think he was meaning. I don't like to build theology on those kind of conjectures. And second, to view Jesus himself as the rock is also difficult interpretively because Jesus is the one speaking these words to Peter. And he says, you are Peter. You are, 
Petros or Petra, I forget which one is first there. But you are the, the, the large rock, and on this rock, you are Petros, and on this, this huge rock like Gibraltar, Petra, I will build my church. It's not impossible, but it seems very awkward for him to be speaking of himself that way, if the rock is, is him. Now, I believe uh, theologically that's more consistent with the rest of the New Testament because he is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. He is he's the bedrock of this whole thing, and that's clear throughout the rest of the New Testament. So I believe New Testament included, inclusive, that idea would be the closest to being real. But I want to introduce something else. And, and, and my idea is actually the combination of both of those last two. I want you to think about what Peter just, um, just confessed. <clears throat> my, my view is that Jesus was referring to Peter as the rock, but not alone or individually. He was not lifting him out among the other apostles. Peter made the confession. He was the first one to speak, so Jesus addressed Peter. <clears throat> He was representative of all the other apostles. And this is the important part. Think about what, Jesus, what Peter had just confessed. Peter had just said the words, Thou art Christos. You are my King, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, I will build on this. Can you make the connection with where Jesus was going with what he said? I believe Peter, it probably again went over Peter's head. But I think Jesus understood the significance of what Peter had just honestly and and what's the word without thinking, speaking without thinking. But this is how he felt in his heart because of his love for Jesus. So I don't think he thought about what he said, but he just blurted it out how he felt. Jesus, you're my king. And Jesus said, Peter, you are a large rock, but on this huge rock like Gibraltar, which is you having made that confession, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When that first came home to my heart and I realized what I believe Jesus was saying, it tremendously inspired me. You know why? Because that confession of Peter comes all the way down to you and I today. Jesus is still saying those words, I believe. And all the way down through history, from the time of the founding of the Christian church right there when Jesus spoke those words to his apostles, And the apostles passed these concepts on to others who passed them on to others. And all the way down through time, there has been a remnant of people who have understood this and maybe not understood it with the clarity with which we're talking about it here today, but have understood it enough to live it out in some form. Their hearts have been committed to Jesus as King. And on that rock, He is building His church. And today it goes right on. You and I are part of that rock. Now, I'd like you to think about this and why this is so important. Every single one of us in this room have relationships. Some of us here are are parents. In fact, you know, you young men that I remember when you were knee-high to a grasshopper and now you're here participating in the church. And you're raising, I see you carrying babies. You're raising the next generation. We've got children. Who's responsible for passing on? This loyalty to King Jesus. You've got friends. Some of them understand this. Some of them don't. You've got work acquaintances. Some of them understand this. Some of them don't. What is your life speaking? And I'd like to say, if you are, if you are loyal to King Jesus in this way, 
you don't have to say a word. Your life is going to show by the way you live, the choices you make, the places you go, all the things that you express out of your life. Your life is going to show your loyalty. We probably understand loyalty best in terms of the old kingdoms. And, and we, you know, today in our democracy here in America, nobody in this country is very loyal to anything. The only thing we're loyal to is what we don't like. And I think sometimes those concepts bleed over in the church. But you get into, you know, three and four hundred years ago in old Europe when you had the, you had the kings and you had the, um, you had the very powerful rulers. I don't know what all they called them, earls and whatever. I read the stories sometimes and I'm fat, yeah, not, not earls like this. It was a different kind of earl. Um, <laughs> but I'm fascinated sometimes with the, with the way those people lived in their utter commitment to whoever their ruler was. I mean, just abandoned loyalty. And I believe we don't understand that. But you think about, even back up to the time, more recent history here for our country, remember the, the Revolutionary War. And remember, and this is true in, in, in almost any war that you have, where soldiers are loyal to one side or the other, they, they do what? They wear the uniform of the side that they're on. They carry the flag of the side that they're on. In the Revolutionary War, wasn't the British, they were redcoats, right? If I remember my story right. And so, you could go anywhere, see a redcoat, and know exactly where they belonged. Now, of course, it's possible for a traitor to put on a redcoat, pretend to be a British soldier, and still be infiltrating that. That happens. Happens today in the church too, by the way. You know, this whole thing of hypocrites being in the church. And some people say, I ain't going to church. Just full of hypocrites. Everybody sits there and pretends. Well, I heard a really good one here about a year and a half or two years ago, I guess, that just really blessed me. This was this older man. He's a, he's a jolly, jolly fellow. He's actually a sweeper salesman that sold us a sweeper some years ago and did, did a lot of work for us. And, uh, but a jollier man you couldn't have. And he considered it his mission to spread the sunshine of Jesus everywhere he went. So I always enjoyed when he came to our house. We, we had a lot of good conversations. But one time he said about that thing that people say, I don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. He says, where else would you expect to find them? And I thought, well, touche. That's perfect. It's true. They're going to be in church because that's where you're making a profession. And there's going to be some people who are perhaps wearing the red coat, but they aren't part of the army. We need to be okay with that. And that does, that should not make us draw back and say, you know, that's a fleshly reaction. I don't want to be in church because there's hypocrites there. Of course there's going to be. There wasn't Jesus day too, honestly. And if you want a challenge, you go look at how Jesus related to a hypocrite. Go look at how Jesus broke bread actually with Judas when he knew what Judas was going to do to him. So that's a little aside. This thing of Romans 1620 there. He, he, God will, will bruise the serpent through you shortly. <laughs> Can you get that in light of this? Alright, if you and I are making this, this choice of loyalty, and not a turncoat loyalty, but real loyalty, we're wearing the king's colors, we're bearing his flag, we're joyfully proclaiming, and that's the gospel, my friends, that's the gospel when we, when we live and we work and we witness wherever we go, we're proclaiming the good news that there's a king, there's another way, there's, you, can, you can do something different than this bondage that you're living in. We're proclaiming that gospel. What's going to happen to the serpent? <laughs> do you see that? 
That's why I got all excited when you brought that verse out this morning. That is beautiful. I have no idea what time you get done here. I didn't look at what time I started either. All right, well, I'll try and keep moving. So today, are you the rock upon which Jesus is building his church? Somebody follows you. I believe if as parents we all got that burden, we all had this question straight in our own hearts, and we were committed to raising our children, understanding this loyalty to King Jesus, it would, it would, we'd pass on the faith. We would not have the rate of loss that we're having. All right, the church. This is a glorious point. What is the church? I will build my church. This, this comes from the Greek word ecclesia. I don't know how many of you have studied that, that, that word, but it's a beautiful word, when, especially when you understand what we just looked at. Ecclesia, and it literally means the community of called out ones. Brothers and sisters, this church that Jesus is going to build is the community of people who understand this confession. And it is one of the most exciting things to me. You know, I came here this morning. I know a lot of you. I don't know near all of you. But I enjoy going to places where I don't know people and being able to sense this kinship, being able to sense this connection, knowing that we have something in common. And you don't have to talk to somebody very long or be with them very long until you can pick up if they understand loyalty to your king. And when you do, you have met somebody who's part of the church. I'll come back to my idea about the Catholics now. Some years ago, when I was in Ghana, Africa, um, during the time I lived there, which was, what, 1994, I met a, um, a, a missionary, a Catholic missionary. He was a Jesuit missionary. Now, I've talked to people since, and they, you can rattle off a whole lot of bad things about Jesuits. Okay, I don't know where all that is. But I sat there that day with that man in Cape Coast on a bench outside a little shop. Both of us had business in there, and it was as gone so often as hurry up and wait. So we were both waiting outside and sitting together, and we visited And as we visited, there was a kinship that clearly connected us the same way it would if I sit down and visit with you here today. We talked about a lot of things. Now, I'm sure that we could have probably found some things to disagree disagree about. But I came away from that interaction saying, you know what? That man respects my king. And I believe that too many times our boxes get a little too small about how we look at all these things. And we tend to put people in a box and say, okay, you're in that box, you belong over here. I think there's probably going to be some Catholics in heaven, just like there's going to be some Mennonites in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And there's a lot I could say about traditions and the interactions of all of those things. You know, you've got faith traditions all around the world. Uh, just read a story this week of the Egyptian cops. Did any of you see that story about forgiveness? I think Fox News carried it. It was amazing. I don't know too much about the Egyptian cops, but that story read an awful lot like the story that was run here a number of years ago from the Amish school shooting about forgiveness. What is forgiveness? <laughs> it's an outworking of our king. So I'm just saying, let's keep hearts open to God's church wherever it is. And just because there's a Catholic, for example, who understands loyalty to the king, or there's an Egyptian cop that understands loyalty to the king, 
or there's a Mennonite that understands loyalty to the king. Doesn't mean that that's the only right way and we all got to be like that. No, faith tradition doesn't work that way. My personal conviction about faith tradition is that we ought to try to live out this loyalty to King Jesus within the context of the of religious tradition or culture in which we were born. Now, that's a mouthful. That's another whole sermon in itself. But that's what I've come to as I've studied this whole thing scripturally and historically. When you're going to, to take one, um, one religious tradition and pit it against another, all you do is, is divide and slice. And I don't think God's as much concerned about our faith traditions as He is concerned about our loyalty to the King Jesus. Nevertheless, when we find ourselves born in and raised in a faith tradition, we have to look very, very carefully at why we're abandoning that and leaving that. I think there's some very dangerous things that go along with that reality. And that's why I don't try to take somebody who's not born a Mennonite and make them a Mennonite. Guess what? They'll never be. It's not possible. They were not born and raised with the set of, of, of values and traditions that I was. But they can have the exact same loyalty and commitment to King Jesus. And as they take their whole frame of reference, their whole cultural context, and they apply this loyalty in their lives, guess what? We're going to have some similarities. We're going to have some common ground upon which we can relate. And conversely, it's just as dangerous for me to think, okay, you know, he's not a Mennonite and he loves the king. I don't have to be either. And so I ditch everything and throw away everything I was raised with and go be like that. It's not likely that my life is going to stay there because I'm abandoning some things that actually are expressions of that loyalty to King Jesus in my own life and context for what it's worth. I want to say, I'm, I'm just going to say one more thing since I'm on that little bunny trail. Um, as you think about faith tradition, I see it like this. We have all kinds of faith traditions and you can look at, you know, the Catholics would be one, the Mennonites would be one, um, and you can find all kinds of sub-traditions sub within even the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, Amish, uh, Brethren, whatever, you know, uh, various evangelicals would be one, and there's lots of differences there. You can have the Lutherans, you can have the Baptists, you can have the Anglicans, on and on it goes. And every one of those groups is going to have a faith tradition. You can fill in the rest of the circles. They're all going to have a faith tradition. The faith tradition they have, for the most part, is groomed by years of application of things that they believed were important. Now, how do faith traditions form? And I'd like you to think about this. I am convinced that every person who takes literal the things that we're talking about here, a loyalty to King Jesus, and seeks to apply His will in their lives, is going to develop culture. I think culture is inescapable. You are going to make culture wherever you are. And culture, practiced long enough, becomes tradition. Usually we get in trouble with tradition then when we're in their second and third generation and we don't understand why these things were done in the first place. And so, the, 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 you know, the most tempting thing to do is just jettison all of it and try to get back to something that we can relate to. I think it's a mistake, and here's why. Surrounding all of this is what I call secular culture. It's all out here. It's godless. It is, it is something that denies God. It denies the mandate of King Jesus. And I believe when, you know, John was talking there in 1 John 2, 15 and 16 about loving the world and the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They're not of the Father, but they're of the world. 
And the world passeth away and all of those things. And you cannot love the world and love God at the same time. I believe that is the secular culture all around. And that culture is constantly pulling outward from every faith tradition that you that is that is in existence. Now, this is philosophy now, okay? I'm departing a little bit from Scripture, but yet this is informed by Scripture. So, as Paul says, you can take this as words from me and think about it, not necessarily from God. But I'd like to pre- present these ideas for you to think about. I believe that the less these faith traditions in embody this commitment to King Jesus, which rises higher than the faith tradition, the more likely they're going to have people succumbing to this force and pressure. And I believe if you study the, the uh, surveys that have come out in the last few years about evangelical Christianity, especially here in the USA, that's why. I think, and, and the, uh, the loss rates are incredible. I mean, people who are being honest with the facts are saying, this is doomed, this ship is hitting the ground. You cannot keep going. And you end up, you visit churches and you find a little collection of old people, that's it. Young people are going to college, they're, they're bailing out. And, and, and while that's happening in the evangelical church, atheism is on the rise. The, the, the amount of people that are saying, I have no religion, I don't go to church, is on the rise. And, and, and I believe it's because they've lost sight of this reality of King Jesus in whatever form they would have once had. And that's where you develop just a tradition without any life inside it. And so, but when we, let's say, and most of us here in this room, not all perhaps, but most of us come from an Anabaptist or Mennonite perspective, when we, um, when we get weary of the idolatry in our tradition, and you will find idolatry in our tradition, and that's what Jesus spoke of consistently against, and Paul, you can look throughout Jesus' words and Paul's words, and they consistently spoke against the idolatry of tradition, they did not, however, seek to destroy the tradition itself. And I challenge you to go look at that. I don't care what faith tradition you look at, you're going to find idolatry. When we use the idolatry of the tradition as a reason to jettison the tradition, one of two questions have to come to us. If I'm going to leave Mennonite or Anabaptist, for example, and become Catholic, I've got to answer the question, what is being offered me there in the Catholic's why is this a better move for me to live out than where I came from? It's another faith tradition, very strong faith tradition. When I make that move, there's a whole lot of things that get affected over here on this side. There's a lot of social connection that surrounds our faith tradition. So when I make a move like that, I'm going to compromise a lot of things. We have to ask ourselves that. If we don't settle on any faith tradition and we find ourselves you know, just sort of floating out here in, in no man's land, and you find people like that today that are just kind of floating in no man's land, don't want to commit to anything, don't want to be members anywhere, don't want to be part of any faith tradition, they're just a Christian. Here's my observation. Almost inevitably, this gravitational pull towards secular culture, which is relentless and non-stop, influences them. And, 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 and my observation has been that when we do not value practical application of, of godliness in our lives and we do not understand the proper place of tradition and we react against it and abandon it, we raise our children in that culture of reaction and abandonment by the second generation. Think carefully about this. By the second generation, there is almost consistently a partial loss of faith. 
And when I say loss of faith, I mean where people no longer profess Christianity, where people no longer profess to have a relationship with God. They might confess that they're an atheist, but at the very least, they do not longer make any claims to being a kingdom believer. That is a loss of faith. It is totally the opposite of what God wants out of us. And so I contrast this commitment to King Jesus with what we so often find ourselves immersed in with all of this stuff. All right, let that be what it is. Ecclesia, the community of called out ones, the whole body of believers around the world. Jesus says, I will build my church. And I believe Jesus has for all time, ever since he spoke these words, been building his church. So I'd like to ask you this morning, most of you here are probably members of Oasis, and that's good. There's a whole lot of reasons why that's good. But I'd like to ask you, are you a member of the church of Jesus Christ? Are you a member of this community of called out ones? Those who believe and confess Jesus as King and as the Son of God, and is He your Lord? It's the most exciting community ever to be a part of. And yes, these petty little disagreements that we have and stuff that gets in the way, honestly, they, they start to get much lower on the scale of importance when we understand the big picture. And it's exciting to be part of that big picture. And then Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. I won't spend much time here, but what are the gates of hell? You know, we so often think of that in the literal way it's written here in King James as being, you know, these forces of evil that are all around us. You know, we go witness in New York City and we meet some crazy person who's demon-possessed and he wants to beat you up. The gates of hell are fighting against you, right? Well, I think it can maybe apply that way. But I don't think that's actually what Jesus was saying because, again, the, the gates of hell, the Greek word here is Hades. And Hades is the place of departed. It's the place of dead. And I think what Jesus was really saying is that death itself will not prevail against my church. The resurrection, theology of resurrection, which, again, maybe you got that last Sunday, but that is such an exciting reality in our Christian experience because Jesus has conquered death. There is no more. It was our last enemy. Everything underneath that. <laughs> it's all walk in the park. Well, I'm, you know, I'm making my point now. I'm going to an extreme. But when Jesus conquered death, it's... And I believe that's what Jesus was saying. <clears throat> I will build my church. And the gates of hell, death itself, will not prevail against it. You can look through every time period in history and you can find all the efforts to stamp out this group of people who were loyal to somebody else. And if you go back to the time when the Anabaptists were so persecuted and the Catholic Church was doing the persecuting at that time, it was a matter of loyalty. And when these Anabaptists came out and dared to go get rebaptized and were no longer loyal to the Catholic Church, it was off with their heads. How successful was that effort? <laughs> and it never has been. And it never will be. You know, because the blood of the martyrs, as people experience the love, as people experience the forgiveness of a true Christian who's reflecting King Jesus, it just makes ten more. I will build my church. Death will not swallow the church. That is a tremendous and triumphant element of God's kingdom. All right, finally, the keys to the kingdom. And I got to get to this one. Uh, I don't know how many of you were raised in a context like I was, but I was raised um, Eastern Mennonite and a lot of good things I learned there. But I remember this verse being one that was quoted so often as a 
as a foundation for church authority. I have given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It confused me for many years. It just didn't seem to make sense with so many other things in the New Testament. And there was a time when I was actually, shortly after I was ordained and we were having an instruction class for some of our young people who wanted to be baptized. My grandfather yet lived, passed away in 2009, and, uh, and he was a Mennonite preacher for most of his life. Uh, all the all years I can remember was him preaching in several different Mennonite congregations. And he taught the instruction class that night. And it was on this, this the, the chapter was on uh, church authority. Of course, the way the lesson was teaching it, I don't think was exactly the way it came out of him. But he went and read this verse out of the Amplified. And I want to read it to you here today. My eyes went wide open. I'd never heard this before. He went on to expound on why this means this. And he's exactly right. But this is what it says in the Amplified. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind or declare to be improper and unlawful on earth must be what is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose or declare lawful on earth must be what is already loosed in heaven. How different does that make that sound? So I went to studying. And I am convinced that that is actually what it means. I'm not a King James basher. I use my King James and I will for as long as I live because my whole memory bank is in King James. I don't know if anybody here is King James only. I might get in trouble with you. Um, I saw a bumper sticker down at the Cam Open House last fall that said, if it ain't, uh, it was a car I parked right behind. If it ain't 1911 King James, it ain't, or 1611 King James, it ain't Bible. And I told my wife, hmm, I better not tangle with him. <laughs> But the reality is, I, I, I appreciate and I respect King James, but I do not personally believe that King James is inspired. I think there are some translation errors in King James, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it. It just means that we have to, as we do with any Bible version, use it with caution and seek to understand what was the message that was being translated here. And, and, and I often like to go back, even though I'm not a Greek scholar, but try to understand those original writings. What was the intent of what was being conveyed? Now, what the Amplified brings out there is beautiful. And it totally syncs with all the rest of the New Testament. Why? Because it brings the idea of accountability. You and I, as committed followers of the King, have been given the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> and I think every one of us here this morning has keys to the kingdom. God's given them to you. When you make that confession, you are my king, the son of the living God. And he says here, here's some keys to my kingdom. Use them Use them wisely. Bind what I have already bound. Loose what I have already loosed. You are a soldier in my service. How long do we keep the keys if we stop doing what the king wants? How long do we wear the uniform of the army if the commanders find out we're a traitor and we're doing what we want, not what they sent us to do? I think it's the very essence of what Jesus was saying. Peter makes the confession. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this. Death will not be able to stamp it out. And I'm giving you authority in my name. Go and do what I want here on earth. Go and do what I would do if I were here in your place. Today, you and I, brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ here on earth. And again, I come back to that verse in Romans. This is why I believe God wants to bruise the serpent through you and I. Today, tomorrow, 
in our relationships, in all of the things. He's given us these keys. He's given us this authority. Go and use it in the name of the King. I am compelled by that truth. So I must close, but I hope today you are motivated to be part of this church triumphant. If you find yourself discouraged, I hope I can lift up your hands. Come on, brothers and sisters. There is hope. There's a glorious thing to live for. You know, can we bring our hearts together around these things that really matter? Am I committed to King Jesus? This church is triumphant. It does live today. Am I willing to make this confession in my own life? Am I willing to be that rock upon which Jesus wants to build his church? And if we are, then we are the Ecclesia. We're a part of this community of called out ones. What a glorious body. It will be victorious. And you go to the revelations and you read about the crown of glory that awaits those who are willing to endure. Do not give up. Do not bail out. Go on, because there is a crown awaiting those who are willing to be faithful to the end. That, that song that we sing, Rise up, O men of God, the church for you doth wait. I think it takes on so much meaning in the context of these truths. And I'd say women too. Rise up, O women of God. We all have a place in God's kingdom. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, today we just come to you at the close of this service and thank you, Lord, for your presence here today. Thank you for blessing us in so many ways from beginning to end. And thank you, Lord, for these powerful truths from Scripture that you have revealed to us and shown us what you would have each, how you would have each one of us to live in this calling that you place upon our lives. God, I pray for every person that's in this room today, wherever our hearts are, you know each one of us. You know the struggles that we face in life. You know, Lord, the things that, that are our triumphs. You know the things that are our defeats. And I just pray that you would inspire each one of us today to lift our hearts to this challenge and say, Yes, Jesus, you are my King. And I pray that as our hearts unite around that, that many of the things that make us struggle at times would find their place underneath the banner that you want us to fly. So God, we just commit all this to you today. We thank you for your love and for your faithfulness. And may your name be glorified in each one of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.